is within the trails we ride. You're listening to the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick is a horseman, trainer, international clinician, and author who helps empower horse people from all over the world with the skills, knowledge, and mindsets needed to create trusting partnerships with their horses. Warwick offers a free seven-day trial to his comprehensive online video library that includes hundreds of full-length training videos and several home study courses at videos.warwickshiller.com. Just because you see G'day everyone, welcome back to the Journey On Podcast. I'm your host Warwick Schiller and we have a very special guest this week. You know, if you guys are long-time podcast listeners, you've probably heard me when talking to people who are really into somatic stuff, like body sensation stuff, you've heard me talk about a term I've heard called Sese Lalame, which came from a, um, a West African tribe called the Anglo-Ive tribe. And that I learned about that in a book called Radical Wholeness by a guy named Philip Shepard. Well, today I have the Philip Shepard on the podcast, and I'll just read you his bio real quick. Philip Shepard is a recognized as a leader in the global embodiment movement. He's the creator of the Embodied Present Process, which he shares in worldwide workshops and facilitator trainings. The aim of this process is to help people reunite the thinking of the head with the deep, present and calm intelligence of the body. The approach is based on Philip's two books, Radical Wholeness and New Self, New World, which articulate the causes, perils and personal challenges of our culture's disembodiment. So, you know, we've talked at length on the podcast about, um, you know, say our hunter-gatherer ancestors and how they were much more in their bodies than than uh, we are. And so this conversation with Philip, he talks quite a bit about that uh, about his process and what uh, he brings to the world. So I hope you guys enjoy this conversation with Philip Shepard as much as I do. Philip Shepard, welcome to the Journey on Podcast. It's a delight to be here, Warwick. Thank you. Hey, I'm delighted you're here. You know, your name has come up in many podcasts and my listeners would have heard me talk about, you know, when I've been talking to guests who are maybe you know, animal communicators like Kerry Lake or different somatic practitioners, maybe some yoga people. You know, I've, I've always talked about a book that I read one time, this really cool book I read called Radical Wholeness by this guy named Philip Shepard. And in there, he talks about a West African tribe called the Anglo-Ive tribe. And they have a, they have a, um, a term that they call Sese Lalame, which is basically translates into English roughly into feel, feel with the flesh from inside. And it's that having a connection between your body and the world around you, that somatic thing. And here on the podcast today, we have the guy himself who wrote that book. So I'm so excited to unravel this. This is cool. Thanks for joining me. Delight. Absolutely. And I can't wait to dive into it all. I can't wait to dive into this either. I, um, why don't you, why don't we start out talking about what you do these days in the world and then i want to i want to go backwards and figure out how you ended up there well I, I i write books as has become clear um there are three books and there's a fourth book wanting to pass through me onto the page and i will find time to do that uh, i love i love writing i love that time where you can 
put the words on paper and, and literally they, they come through my body and put them on paper. And then you can question them and prod them and hold them to account and strip them down to what is as, as true as you can possibly um, manage within, within the constraints of language. Um, but I also travel, you know, words on a page are one thing, experiences another. So I have developed over 150 practices what they all have in common is that they target some desensitivity where, where, you know, we have been systematically desensitized by our culture to so much that passes through the body to the point where um, we have to struggle to feel the present as a whole, to feel the body as a whole. We, we don't know what it is, it is to speak from the whole of our being to face an issue with the whole of our being. And all, you know, all there is, is wholeness. There, there's, there's nothing that's not participant in that. So, you know, to, to, to realize that you can't feel wholeness is at the same time to realize that you cannot feel reality. You're thinking about it, you're organizing your schema uh, about it, but, but to, be receptive to it, to feel it as a current running through you that informs with impeccable guidance. That's another thing. So I, I share these practices in online sessions and in workshops and retreats um, whenever I can. You know, there was so much to what you just said right then. One of the, the, one of the first things you said about the books is, you like to write down what passes through you onto the page. And I've had two different podcast guests who are um, mystic poets who, mm. uh, who download. It's, like, uh, it's kind of like Sufi poetry. Um, and, yeah, they're, they're, they're mystic poets and, and stuff just comes through them. And, and when you said that passed through me onto the page, have you ever read a book called Big Magic by um, Elizabeth Gilbert? No, I love Elizabeth Gilbert, though. Big Magic? She wrote a book called, yes. Um, she wrote a book called Big Magic, and it's about the magic of writing uh, or, or creative, being creative, really. But she talks about how it comes through you. And she has a great story in there about how she had a story that she was going to write, but she didn't ever write it. And then she met somebody else who wrote the exact same story. And it was it was more about the universe will try to send a message through you. And if you won't be the messenger, it'll find another messenger. So I'm glad that you uh, have taken the call and uh, are downloading the message onto paper so the rest of us can um, experience it. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. And, you know, it's just there is, uh, you know, I think of it as, as an attunement of the body that I'm not in any way in control of, but but it will guide me as surely as a as a compass will guide a sailor. You know, it's and 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 to come back to that attunement, that is that's where the words come from. <laughs> that's that's funny because you you know nothing about me. So I <laughs> was a horse trainer. Still, uh, don't really train horses for other people anymore. I kind of help people train their horses and have like an online base that I, I do that in and also travel around the world doing clinics. But a number of years ago, I changed the name of my business to Warwick Schiller Attuned 
horsemanship because the whole attunement with the horses is it it goes beyond obedience you know i was very good at teaching horses to be obedient just like i was a very obedient child i was taught to be very obedient um but with the horses that yeah that that it's just funny that you brought that word attunement up because that's part of my business and i'm always on about attunement these days so i love that so you've written three books the one that I've referred to a lot, Radical Wholeness, that wasn't the first one, was it? No, the first one was New Self, New World. And um, it was probably the foremost teacher in my life. I was 10 years writing it, and I I rewrote it from scratch four times. So, you know, I, I got the first draft, and I felt it was finished, and then and then there wa- it wasn't. And it was, it was as though I was trying to ford a river, and each draft was like a rock that, you know, as far as I could stretch and plant it in the river. And then I could stand on that rock and reach with the next draft. And, and I, did, I did get to the other side. And it is, it is the foundation for all my work. And it is a, it is a huge um, sort of a my, – my, my abiding question is, is – where are we as a culture? How do we understand where we are? And, and in order to understand where we are, how did we get here? What is that journey? And so it, it looks at that um, through, through different, you know, different frameworks from quantum physics to world mythology to religion to art, you know, archaeology, um, uh, architecture. It, 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 they're, they're all part of the same story that we have as a culture developed and to which we are largely blind because we habituate to it. We take it as normal. So the title of the book, New Self, New World, um, refers to the fact that that when you come home to the self in a way that our culture tacitly prohibits, and then you open your eyes you see a different world, um, and uh, it was um, it was a gift to be able to spend those ten years um, learning from it, uh, honing it, finding the the delicacy of language that was able to to encircle certain hidden and still hidden truths that that somehow um, words can point to without trying to manhandle. You know, you just touched on some different things there. And for quite a while now on the podcast, I've been banging on about our hunter-gatherer ancestors and how we, uh, you know, we've been conditioned to live in a way in the last several hundred years at least, if not more, um, that's totally gotten away from the way we evolve. You know, we haven't changed for quite a long time you know think about our hunter-gatherer ancestors ten thousand years ago um we are not living like we evolved to live and we are suffering the consequences of that so it sounds like that's what you're on about you know i've just been re-listening to radical wholeness i had read it several years ago but before the interview i've been re-listening to it and I wanted to ask you about, so this Anglo-Eve tribe, I've talked about them quite a bit on the podcast, but I know nothing about them. Have you spent any time with them or is that the, you using the term um, Cecil Alame, is that just something you read somewhere that coincided with 
what the message you're trying to get across, or have you actually spent time with them? Uh, alas, I haven't spent time with them, but there's a woman, Elizabeth Lynn Geertz, who wrote a book, Culture and the Senses. And she had heard of this culture that basically has a completely different sensorium from what we take for granted. And um, she went and lived with them and wrote this book about her experience and what she came to understand. And um, I, I loved that book and, and cite it in, in New Self, New World. Um, and there are, there are so many uh, levers within that book for disclosing um, hidden assumptions by which we live that, that are erroneous uh, or, or that don't, don't stand up to question. Um, so one of the, I mean, there, I'll mention a couple from the book. One is um, that their primary sense, and, and uh, Elizabeth Geertz um, sort of sketches out nine senses that, that the culture recognizes, but the primary one is balance. And here's what's curious to me. We have an organ devoted to balance. We um, speak of, of having a good sense of balance, but we don't, we don't allow balance to be validated as a sense. And how I understand that is we have so contracted from the world within this sort of tyrannical isolation of the self that we we cannot tolerate anything that speaks against it. So every other sense acknowledges a, a, a boundary that separates me from the world. So, you know, light crosses the boundary and lands on my retina, or a smell crosses the boundary and lands on my nose. Yeah, the sound, they all uphold the idea of a, of a boundary through which a sense sensation travels to arrive on a receptor. Balance isn't like that. There's no, there's no boundary. There's, there's, it's this felt relationship with the earth itself. And so it, in, a, in that way, it, it repudiates the boundary that as a culture we so desperately cling to. Um, so balance is one sense that, that, that is like that lever that, whoa, that's pretty compelling. Um, another is they uh, call speech a sense. And, you know, the initial reaction might be, how, how could they get it so wrong? A, a sense receives information, speech delivers information. And I think we're gravely mistaken in that, because when I, when I begin speaking, I don't know where these words are going to take me. I don't know what the next phrase is, what the last word will be. Each phrase lights the way to the next, illuminates the path in the same way that I might feel my way forward in a dark room using my hand. And so, and so to understand speech as a sense is to, is to honor its gifts more fully than to think of it as a delivery mechanism. I'm delivering this opinion, this perspective to you. No, I am searching through it with the whole of my sensitivity using languages as one of our sort of foremost tools for exploration. You know, I know a few writers and 
they talk like they write, and I love to listen to them talk. And you, you're along the same lines too. I'm just here mesmerized by the, the way you, uh, not only what you're delivering, but the way you're delivering it. And I did love that part in the book about the, you know, our five senses, they are limited to, you know, they reinforce the idea that there's an end to us and a beginning to everything else and, you know, we are separate from everything else. And then there's also the we are separate, you know, our, our brain is one thing and our body's separate from that. And, you know, like I mentioned, I've been on about the, the whole hunter-gatherer thing for quite a while now and, you know, especially Indigenous wisdom, things like that and, you know, all the Indigenous wisdom stuff that I've studied there was not just like the Anglo Eve, there was not that separation. Like, and and the other thing is the way indigenous people looked at the world is it wasn't like humans were at the top and everything else was below and there was a hierarchy to it. It's a it's a collective and like everything almost, you know, in say, like I work with horses and I heard of horses, people tend to think that there's a there's a hierarchy, there's a dominance and there's a, a leader and there's a whatever, whereas every horse does things for the good of the whole of the herd. And it's the same with hunter-gatherers. I had a guy named Rupert Isaacson on the podcast who's done quite a bit of work in um, Botswana with the, the Khoisan Bushmen and he actually took the Khoisan to the United Nations and got them the Botswana's biggest land rights claim. He's actually banned by the Botswana government from entering Botswana anymore because he gave half of Botswana away. <laughs> um, but he was saying that when a documentary film crew goes to film, say, some hunter-gatherers, when they show up, the one guy comes out of the, out of the tribe and, and comes over and he does all the conversing. And we, with the way we view the world, we tend to think, oh, he's the chief. But in a hunter-gatherer society, the person best suited for the job does the job and obviously this guy is the guy that's best suited for speaking to outsiders maybe he knows a bit of english or french or whatever and so it's just the way we view it a certain way and we we give it a certain title like oh yeah he's the chief but he's not the chief at all and and um yeah i think i think the the embodied process you're talking about is is very rooted in our you know, the way we evolved to be. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, it, it's so many things come up as you're speaking. One is we, we others have said it, science is our new religion. We, we take it to be gospel. Um, and we don't, as a result, see its limitations. And one of the starkest differences for me between um, scientific knowledge and indigenous knowledge is that science learns about the world and indigenous knowledge learns from the world. And there is a humility to that, 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 that makes us human. I mean, the word humility and the word human, they share a common ancestor, which is earth, humus. We are human beings, we are earth beings. And, and you know, our evolution over thousands of years um, in terms of European culture, we, we transitioned from hunter-gathering to uh, agriculture over, over a stretch of time. It wasn't, it wasn't an event. It was, it was this process. And, and 
it changed everything. You, you, you imagine pushing a seed into the ground and patting it down. With that act, everything changes. Suddenly the, the little plant growing up beside yours is a weed. Weeds didn't, didn't, didn't exist until that moment. Everything was a manifestation of the goddess. Everything revealed her in its own way. And then the, the little animal coming along is now vermin. Vermin didn't exist, and it has to be killed because it might eat your plant. And and the, the tree growing beside your plant has to be cut down because it's robbing your, your plant of the sunlight. That it, so everything changes. And, and there were, initiated by that, there were a number of transitions. One is that we, prior to that, had been gathered around the mother. And my God, what could be more natural than that? And then we transitioned and gathered around the father and, 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 and moved into patriarchy. Um, we, our orientation was to the earth and the goddess of the earth. And then it moved to the sky and the gods of the sky. And suddenly we are, we are aspiring to leave the earth, to leave our humanness in that, in that sense and, and move into that pure, clear, airless realm um, where we imagine the gods. And, and, and in that same movement up, we turned the earth itself in, we demonized the earth. It became hell. You know, hell is down. How, how does that happen? Well, one of the main reasons it happened was because we, we were trading, um, our ability to live in harmony, guided by the world around us, attuned to the world around us, for the security that is promised by control. And as that happened, as I understand it, you know, we, this, this is strange for some people to consider, but we f felt our thinking in the belly. We we felt the world from the belly. And I feel that intelligence as the female pole of my consciousness. And you can see in language and art how that began to rise up through the body. So in Homer's day, and I don't know why people don't make more of this, but Homer has a word freen or freenies, which means mind, and it also means diaphragm. And there's one translator, Richmond Ladmore, who preserves that sense. He'll have a character say, the mind within my breast understands your words. And then the transition continued. Um, so by Plato's day, 350 BC, we're in our heads. There's a dialogue, um, Timaeus, in which this very wise man, Timaeus, is, is asked, how do the gods fashion us? And his reply was, well, first, they fashioned this divine orb based on the spheres of the heavens. And then they realized it wouldn't be able to get around very well. So they grew it a vehicle, arms and legs and a trunk. So there we are, 350 BC, and the head is referred to as the divinest part of us and the body as a vehicle. And, and we have been continuing that journey, becoming more and more reliant on our abstractions and less and less connected to that deeper harmony that we turned away from.
Yes, it's been around a while. You know, in that you you mentioned about the 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 transition from thinking of the earth and then thinking towards the sky. And there's a great part in the start of your book, Radical Wholeness, where you talk about the uh, some of the cultural conditioning you have we have, and you gave a really good example of a, a necktie. Okay, if you go and see a doctor and he has a tie on, we tend to think he's more capable than a doctor who was wearing no necktie with his his collar open. But if you go and see a doctor who's wearing a necktie, but it's pulled down a little bit away from his neck and his top button's open, we don't tend to think of him as being as good a doctor as the one who's got the, the thing done up. And then I think pretty soon after that in that book you talked about, you know, like up and down and the, you know, the hell's below us and 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 you know heavens above us and i think there was some more there about ups and downs and how it it came part of our language we have an upturn and we have a downturn you know ups good downs bad yeah and not only part of our language but our neurology our neurology is patterned by this value system that says up is good and down is bad and there's nothing there's there's nothing inherent in that value system that is true. You know, in another culture, I could say, um, you're looking up today, and it might mean you're looking a little ungrounded and flighty. Are you all right? Or mm. or I might say you're looking a little low, and it might mean you're looking at rest on the earth and at peace with yourself. How lovely. But so so it's not, it's not, it's not just language. Consider this: when we when we are stressed. Our energy doesn't come to rest on the earth, which would enable us to act more clearly. Our energy goes higher and higher in the body until finally there's this lightning storm going on in the head. And, and it, is, it is disabling, but we have internalized that the head should be in charge. The head will save us. Up is good to such an extent. And even when we're startled, you know, uh, uh, the startle, you know, in our culture, we're, we we go off balance and become tight in the face of a threat. We're trying to get our energy as high as we can in in that instinctive, learned instinctive neurological response. And you know, you look at a cat by contrast, and a cat startled, and it's like, whoom, down to the earth. Now it's ready, and 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 you know, so it's not a, it's not a a concept um, that that we're guided by. It is it lives in our neurology to the extent that I think there are very few people in our culture who have experienced as adults what it is. To allow yourself to come completely to rest on the earth, there is a learned mistrust of the earth. And we, you know, if you're not, to my way of thinking, if you're not at rest on the earth, you're not at rest in the body, you're not at rest in the present. And that impulse to go higher, to to be in control, um, interferes with that more natural and more logical coming home to the earth. Yes, yeah, like when you get tense, your your shoulders head up towards your ears. And I've read something recently about people with a lot of anxiety tend to walk on their toes. 
you know, they, 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 their heels don't put as much pressure on the ground. They, everything rises up and they kind of, they're kind of tiptoey. And you're right. You said like with a cat, well, you know, a lot of my listeners have horses. And if you're riding a horse and it spooks at something, it doesn't move sideways first. The first thing it does is they drop slightly. Ah. And they get ready because now they're ready to push off yeah. in any direction to go. They don't get higher. They get, they get lower. And then very soon after that, they might get quite high. <laughs> no, yeah. but, you know, the first, that first thing is, is, is a down, it's a grounding, it's a, and it's, if you think about like martial arts, one of the things they've got to teach you to do is to, to ground. I remember years ago, I went to, I was going to, uh, oh, this is 25 years ago, going to gung fu classes and, and like balancing on one foot, they would have us think about, you know, when you get wobbly and you're, you're in your head, you know, like you're trying to, you're trying to balance yourself up the top and they would have you think about, try to press into the ground with the holy it's like in yoga when they like want you to like spread your toes and press into the ground with all four corners of your foot it's kind of like we've we're trying to reteach ourselves to be human you know to be the way we were supposed to be yeah and even though even the way our shoes are designed they deaden the feet the feet lose their their natural reflex with walking and then we have all these foot problems that show up and 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 that quality of allowing the foot to soften into the earth and and find you know its natural relationship changes everything yeah you know i was just thinking about the your i've only read one of your books radical homeless but i was just thinking about in there you got to so that you know there's the if you think the original way we were, like think about indigenous practices, think about our hunter-gatherer ancestors. Um, but there's also a part in the book that's about, you know, when we talk about quantum quantum physics and quantum mechanics and you have a great, and it's like an analogy in there, where you talk about a whirlpool in a river and you can look at the whirlpool and it stays constant it's a thing but it's not actually a thing because the water's changing all the time and then you you relate that to a tree which i thought was really cool where you where you said that <clears throat> you know the tree is like a whirlpool like it's always it's always changing and somewhere in that dialogue there you were talking about our perceptions of things and i recently read a really cool book called by a a British naturalist, I think he's named Charles Foster, and the book was called Being a Human, Adventures in 40,000 Years of Consciousness. And in that book, he talked about, so he spent quite a bit of time in the north of England living in the forest with his son, like living in the forest. Like he didn't eat for nine days at one point in time, and they were eating acorns and sleeping under bushes and things like that. But he was talking about the trees, and he, at one point in time he said, you know, I've never really seen a tree. As a matter of fact, it's been a long time since I've actually seen anything. You know, when I look at a tree, the light reflects off the tree and bounces onto my retina, then my mind turns it up, my brain turns it up the other way because it comes in upside down, and then I start to analyze, well, what kind of tree it is and what kind of birds and animals live in it and whether it loses its leaves in the wintertime and what other trees support it and what other trees try to kill it and what weeds grow and yada, yada, yada. He said, but I don't really see the tree. And he said, I I once met a man who could see a tree. 
but he, and he scared me so much, I, I took the next bus back to Kathmandu and flew straight home. So I, 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 left the, I left the temple or I left the whatever and ran back to Kathmandu basically, but this guy could see a tree. And I, I, when I was listening to you talking about that tree, I was thinking about that Charles Foster thing about being able to take in exactly what's in front of you without having a story attached to it. Do you want to talk a bit about the tree and the whirlpool? Because I thought that was I thought that was a great uh, analogy. A lot of this for me aligns with what Ian McGilchrist has clarified about uh, right hemisphere, left hemisphere differences. So in my terms, as I understand it, um, there is a choice to be made where you can be in felt relationship with the world or known relationship with the world. Now, if I'm in known relationship with the world, I can look around. There's nothing um, that my eyes can rest on that is unknown to me. I know, I know what everything is. If I know what it all is, why would I bother feeling it? And that's the, the presumption our culture is dedicated to known relationships. And the assumption is that the more you know, the better off you'll be. But to come into felt relationship is that unmediated, embodied attunement that we'll never know in that final objectified way, it it feels not things but processes. And ultimately, our you know stickiness to the idea of things is is a pretense. Everything is a process. Uh, you know, the plastic pen, it's changing all the time. I, there's, there's nothing, the, the solid piece of granite is in process, and we are in process. And, and you know, again, to look at a tree um, as a thing is, is not to see the tree. To feel the tree as a process, you begin to say, and where, you know, where does that, where's the limit? Where's the boundary of that process? And you can say, well, it's the roots, but then part of the process of the roots is the moisture and the mineral content of the soil and and part of that mineral content is the is the worms moving through the soil and the hummus on it that, that the rain pulls into the soil and 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 so the rain is part of the process of the of the tree and the the mountains that push the rain out of the clouds are part of the process of the tree and the sun is part of the process of the tree and the galaxy that holds the sun in place is there there so so once you understand process you 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 feel this extraordinary delicate infinitely complex exchange that is unfolding in every moment and then you feel yourself as a part of that. And, you know, when I, when I go back to what I sort of most yearn for, it is that, that felt aliveness to the world, that felt reality. And then, I, and then I think, well, what is, you know, what is my experience of reality? And what I come to is that, my experience of reality is my experience of the world passing through me. 
And so I take in a breath. And the exhalations of forests are becoming part of me. They are turning into my body. And then I breathe out in exchange a gift of carbon dioxide that someday might find itself in the grains of of a growing tree. And, and you know, or I, I bite into an apple and I chew and I swallow and it's flesh and its juice become my flesh and blood. The apple becomes my capillaries, my eyelashes, my skin. It, the apple becomes me and then leaves me. And as it leaves me, it, it nourishes the apple tree or, you know, did until toilets were invented or, or I, I meet someone I love and I feel their presence, not, not as an objectified presence, but I feel their energy wash through me, and I feel my reality in that moment more keenly as it does. So so I, too, am a whirlpool. I am a process. And to assert the boundary of independence that our culture insists on um, is to diminish your ability to live in reality, your experience of reality. And then we wonder why we feel alienated and estranged and disconnected. You, because you teach, um, I think, all around the world. And what is the, it's, there's an acronym, and it's got two E's in it. What is it? Oh, the embodied present process. The embodied present present, that's it. Um, do you, do you live in that space? Like, while we're talking right here, are you feeling everything in the room around you or do you have to, like, is it part of who you are or is it, is it, you know, like if I sit down to meditate, I, I, my body turns in a bit more of a tuning fork than if I'm just, you know, like if I'm, let's say I'm doing a Zoom call with my therapist or something or other and she'll want me to get into my body, I usually have to close my eyes because when my eyes are open, I'm in my head. When I close my eyes, I can get more in my body. Do you, do you live in that? Does your body live in that space to where you are feeling everything with your body all the time? Yes and no. <clears throat> so it's not that I'm aware of any of every detail in the room around me. Uh, no, my 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 attention moves and floats and focuses and dilates, but the sense of being at rest in my body is one that I tend to abide in because anything else hurts. I mean, it just, mm. it, it, you know, th there's a time where you're, you're learning how to um, release the whole of the body to the breath. And, and that takes conscious effort. You have to pay close attention. I, you know, I really think we're all like stroke victims. And, and the stroke victim, you know, the therapist says, pick up the pen. And, and he says, I, I, I can't. I, my hand doesn't work. Pick up the pen, concentrate. And he concentrates and he gets it a little. And then he's able to get it. And, and a week later, he can pick it up without even thinking about it. I, so there is a quality of paying close attention that is a sort of agony because I don't, I don't know of many things more difficult than paying close attention to something you can barely feel. But that's what the stroke victim has to do. And I think what our culture has done to us mm. is comparable. And, and so 
that quality of consciously paying attention, even though you can barely feel the pelvic floor, even though you can barely feel the breath wave down through the legs, you are you are facilitating new neural pathways. Um, you know, technically, what you're doing with that quality of paying close attention is you're activating the nucleus bacillus, which is this feature in the brain that runs 24-7 when we're kids, and then it sort of shuts off when we're 10 or 11 years old, and, and, so, and so it needs to be activated. But what happens is that conscious effort reliably turns into um, unconscious behavior. So as I, as I learn to release my body to the in-breath and release my body to the out-breath, I am recalibrating my body, and now I don't have to remember to do it. My body will remind me. It will say, this feels like crap. What's going on? Oh, right. I, I've got tension in the pelvic floor. I, you know, um, I, I'm not at rest on the earth, whatever it might be. And, and so it just, it just feels better to release the body to the breath, to attune to the present. And, and what thwarts us, I think, in our um, desires to, to move more deeply into that state is a tacit modus operandi of our culture that says, if I can get through this, I'll feel better later. If I can just get this done, I'll feel better later. And, you know, later is deferred and deferred and deferred. And, and what is it that keeps us from granting us ourselves the permission to feel good now? And to me, all the practices I teach, um, they, they are only validated for me if, if I feel better doing them. And so it it becomes a it becomes a a sort of litmus test. If I'm if I'm not feeling good, um, I am not at rest in the present. And during that, you mentioned that you know when we're about ten or eleven, we kind of we have it as children. Then we're about ten or eleven, we lose it. But do you do you think that's not a a thing that actually? happens because it happens do you think that after five or six years of going to school and being made to sit in a chair and think a certain way that we actually lose it because i i know a number of people some of them have been podcast guests especially people with senses that most people don't think are senses people who can communicate with animals uh, things like that and they encourage their children kind of like the anglo eve they encourage their children to be aware of those senses and don't try to shut them down. And it appears those kids, when they're 10 or 11, don't lose that. So do you think that's more cultural conditioning from our society, our parents, uh, the way the school system works? Or do you actually think that even hunter-gatherer children at 10 or 11 lost that, which I don't think you're going to say that. But what's your thoughts on that? Um. I would frame it differently. I would I would say it's not 
a result of the school system, but the school system is a result of our cultural affiliations. Mm. So if you are directed towards known relationship and you are oriented and that is, 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 is how you are inculcated um, to pay attention to the world, the world will become stale. And there's, there's, no, there's no other way. And it's one reason we crave novelty um, in distractions and, uh, you know, so many, so many ways. But the, to come back to the nucleus basilis, there are three ways that it can be activated. One is that quality of paying close attention. Another is a shock, um, you know, God forbid you're in a motor accident or whatever, and, and it is activated. The third is a novel situation. Now, if you are in felt relationship with the world, every situation is novel. The present has, this has never been here before. It will never be here again. It is new and you feel its newness and, 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 and the body responds. So I think, I mean, you know, I, I speculate that that is, that is what is at the heart of it and that willingness to feel the present. I mean, you know, I think of the um, Pidahan culture in the Amazon forest and their whole culture is oriented to the present to such an extent that they have no interest in in agriculture, which is future oriented. Why would they? They can go into the forest and whatever they need is is waiting for them. Um, and and their very language, you know, they you can only speak of something like the grammar is so constructed that you can only speak of something that you have seen or that you heard about from someone who saw it, or that you saw evidence that led you to believe it had happened. But you can't say, you, the language doesn't make it possible to say, well, you know, Joe said that Sally had heard that Betty had a, a fight with her husband. You, you, can't, it doesn't, you can't do that grammatically. It's immediate experience. There's a very funny story if we have if we have time for it, um, we have time for the, funny stories. Don't worry. All right, all right. Um, so there was the 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 guy who's done the most um, research on the the Pidaha and has written extensively about it um, began as a missionary with a a mission not to proselytize, not to convert, but 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 in the belief that if the Bible were translated into every language. In the world, it it would and and people could read it. It would do their work. So um, they had tried to translate um, the Bible into Pidaha, and it was, you know, the, there was a guy who had spent five years and and gave up. It, the language is so complex, so different. He couldn't get it, and and so Dan Everett um, went down and gave it a try. And and began to learn the language and uh, and you know mentioned Jesus <laughs> and um, the Pitahan said, well, tell us about Jesus. Was was he brown like us or was he white like you? And and Dan said, well, I I, I actually don't know. I mean, I've I've never met him. Well, what did your father say? Was he brown like us or or pale? Well, no, my dad didn't meet him either. Well, well, who has met him? Well, I, actually, there's nobody who's who's 
met him. Well, then why are you telling us about him? <laughs> What's this got to do with anything? And as Dan Everett tells the story, um, they converted him. <laughs> but that, you know, that attunement, that allegiance to the present is something that, um, alas, has become alien to us. You know, on uh, social media, I'm not sure if I saw it on Instagram or Facebook recently, there was a picture and it was a, this very tall, older guy. He was an anthropologist and he was pictured with a, a Bushman of the Kalahari. And the, the text that went along with it had something to do with this guy was studying the Bushman of the Kalahari and they asked him about hearing the stars. Have you ever seen that? And, and, and Lawrence Vanderpost. Is that who that was? Yeah. And like he yep. said, I can't hear the stars. And they're like, what do you mean you can't hear the stars? They're, they're singing. Can you not hear them? Right. Um, a good friend of ours who was one of my first guests on the podcast three years ago, Jane Pike, her, she lives in New Zealand. Her husband was a, a documentary filmmaker for National Geographic. And so he's been in, you know, places all over the world. And they were in, he was a camera guy and they were in a jungle somewhere maybe in the Amazon, somewhere like that. And they were living, uh, they spent, you know, quite a bit of time with this tribe in their little village and every day they'd go off with the, the men and they'd go off hunting and they'd go off into the jungle and it's like the canopy's so thick you can't tell where the sun is, you can't tell what direction you're in, you can't see any hills, whatever. And they would go off for hours and they'd come back from the total opposite direction they left in, but they'd still come back to the village. And after... A number of days of doing this, they said to the villagers, so how do you find your way back to the village? And, he, and the guy said, well, that's easy. We just ask the animals. And he said, but I haven't, I haven't seen you stop and, like, talk to a monkey and say, ooh, ooh, ah, ah. And he goes, oh, we don't. And he points to his head and he goes, we don't ask the animals. And then he points to his body. He goes, we ask the animals. Beautiful. Beautiful. <laughs> and, you know, that's like it doesn't matter what indigenous culture you go to, they all had that part. You know, part of the language was that felt sense that you're you're on about, and it's just I'm fascinated by it because I've spent most of my life in a uh, kind of a shutdown state, so my body didn't talk to me at all. And I've been working on it for probably, I was about 50 before I realized it, you know, because what's normal's normal. Yeah. Um, so I've been working on it for about six or seven years now. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a slow process, but it is really interesting getting to where your body starts to, to talk to you. It's, it's. Yeah. And just to say, I, you know, what is embodiment? What, I feel my body as a resonator. And, and like the, it's like a singing bowl and the currents of the present, the fluctuations of the moment are passing through it and, and it is resonating. And, and, and that attunement that you speak of, that, that to me is our primary mode of intelligence, which enables us to learn from the world rather than about the world. And there's value in both, but we've lost that capacity to learn from the world. And I'm thinking there's a there's a an indigenous culture, um, the Aliot nation, that you know, there there's that trail of islands off Alaska that that moves out and separates the 
the Bering Sea from the Pacific Ocean, and that's where they live. And speak about finding your way home. Um, there's fog like 300 days of the year, and this is a seafaring culture, and, and they can navigate in the fog. And and they are hunters. Um, their relationship with the sea lion is akin to that that the Plains Indians have with the buffalo. And and there's an, an elder, uh, Ilarion Merculiuf, who talks of being a child, and he'd go down like at the age of four or five, and and the the men were sitting on these rocks, sort of looking out to the sea, and they weren't daydreaming. They'd be there for hours, in my language, attuning. And then one of them would say, sea lion coming, and all the heads would turn and look in the same direction. Now, it's not that the sea lion could be seen. It's 10 miles offshore, but they feel its presence. And when Alarion speaks of intelligence, when he speaks of what how he understands true intelligence, he'll say it is a wordless state. And we fill our heads with, with commentary and judgment and, and assessment and organizing. And, and that attunement to the world is actually what has enabled us as a species to survive. Because in that attunement, there is, there is an invitation to harmonize. And, you know, there are, there are so many ways in which, in which um, we are stuck in the head. And one of them is, I mean, for my, for my money, the deepest wound that has been inflicted on us by our culture is one that separates our thinking from our being. And you mentioned school. I mean, you think of a I mean, I remember being a kid in school, and here's your desk, and here's your chair, and you sit still, and you pay attention to the head of the class, the head of the class, and if you can't sit still, you're punished, and and if you can fill your head with the right answers, the right uh, strategies, you're rewarded. So, 12 years of reward and punishment, and we come out of that system believing that we can think more clearly with this fragment of our intelligence in the head than we can with the whole of our being, which which doesn't make any sense. But, you know, you go back to the Latin root, sentire, that's a Latin verb that is the root of our word sense. Sentire meant to think, to feel. It meant both. They were one thing. And that's preserved in English. You know, I might say, you're not making sense, in which case I'm saying your, your thinking is muddled. Or I might say, I sense something's wrong, which means I'm, I feel something's wrong. But, but we experience being and thinking as, as two different things. And when they come together, when we soften into the wholeness of our being, Every thought is felt through the body. And, you know, I, I feel my thoughts sort of rising through the singing bowl of my body and, and sublimating as they do and appearing as words. And, and it is, it is a, I'm feeling every word 
and with you know i i can speak in a way that doesn't require me to to feel any of my words and it simply hurts um it it's and and as i speak in that manner you're not feeling my being and surely what's most compelling in anything we say is is the being that lies behind those words that is that is giving birth to those words so so to to feel every thought through the whole of your being and at the same time to recognize every sensation in the body as a form of thinking is to invite that wound to heal that we might release ourselves back into the unity in which we're born Wow, that was quite the speech right then. I loved that. You know, I loved how you, I, I just learned something right there because I tend to talk fast. Australians talk fast. And when I'm talking to someone fascinating like you, I get all excited and I'm talking about it. But you were, you have this slow, measured tone. But then you said when you, then you did this thing where you said, but if I don't, if I don't talk with my body, I go out in my head. Blah, 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 blah. You started talking like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you did, blah, 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 blah. you just babble on away like me, and then when you got back into your body, everything slowed back down, and it's like your body is. And tell me if I'm wrong here, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a, I'm a recent convert to this somatic stuff. Um, when you were talking, the what you were talking about, it seems to me like it's coming not through your head, but it's almost like coming through your body. Is that, would that be a fair assessment? It's, it's, it's how I experience it for sure. <laughs> okay. I just learned something totally new. That was, that, that was a great, I mean, watching you, you totally changed. Your face changed. Everything changed when you started talking like me. Uh, when I started talking the way I used to talk, when I started talking the way I was trained to talk. Yes. And and when the words arise from my body, there is, I feel so much more clarity and precision um, as, as they find their way. It's, it's, it's a much, much richer experience for me as a speaker and, you know, hopefully for a listener. I think, I think my words are more easily heard when my being is felt behind them. Mm. Most certainly. And I love the phrase he used a minute ago, the singing bowl of my body. Uh, when you say that, I, I get like this somatic sensation. So one of, the, one of the many things I've been doing for a number of years now to help me get back in my body is um, ice baths. And I had an ice bath here not long ago before we got on the thing here. And so my body's talking to me right now, but it's not – and I don't know if you've ever done the ice baths, but it's not, your body's not cold after you get out of an ice bath. Your body is alive. It's not like, oh, I feel cold. It's like your body's talking to you. I don't have to think, what does my calf feel like right now? I don't have to go there. My body's talking to me. And it was, that sensation was heightened when you said, you talked about the singing bowl of my body. And I just got this, woo. Had a, we had a, um, we have uh, retreats here at our our place, and um, just the other day we had a group of. So just down the coast from us is a is a place called 
um, Operation Surf. And they are a place that helps uh, veterans with PTSD and things like that by teaching them to surf, take them out in the ocean and, you know, get them into their bodies. And uh, there was a group of them down there last week, but they brought the wives along with them too. And so the organiser, she brought the wives up here and um, my wife led them through an ice bath, but we also had a, um, a yoga teacher come in and do a yoga session with them. But we also had a um, lady come in and give them all a sound bath. And she had, I don't know, probably eight or nine crystal bowls. She had a couple of big metal bowls. She had some chimes. She had all sorts of stuff. But anyway, because it's at our place, I got to have the sound bath too. And oh my goodness, it was so cool. I love the sound baths. Yeah, so once you once you understand the body not as a thing, not as a machine, <clears throat> not as an apparatus, but as a resonator, then you know you begin to appreciate that what enhances its ability to resonate to the world is the spaciousness within it just as the spaciousness of a singing bowl is what facilitates its its tone. Um, what happens with our bodies is that we fill our bodies with uh, agendas and things to do and obligations and responsibilities and fears and anxieties. And, and, and it's like stuffing a singing bowl full of sand. And then, you know, you can tap the singing bowl, you will, will get nothing from it. And, and when that happens, as our bodies become increasingly congested, we stop feeling the present. We, you know, it's, we're dulled to it, just like the singing bowl. And, and then all you can do, the only strategy available, is to sit in your head and guide yourself. Mm. Because the guidance of the present is no longer available. And so embodiment, for me, moves through two stages. And... The first of those stages is to feel the shadows, the orphaned energy within the body that is stuck. And to, you know, I, I really feel that energy as, as, as I would feel an orphan, that it has been exiled from mm -hmm. union with my being. It's been put on hold. It is alone. And just as an orphan cannot be pushed into a family, it, it can only be welcomed with love, uh, you know, to offer those qualities to that stuck energy and feel it soften and being, you know, finding a willingness to come home and bit by bit the body recovers its spaciousness. And then, you know, the second stage of embodiment is being at rest in the body, at rest on the earth, attuning and and you know, to me, it's partly a, a tension between doing and being where our culture puts doing as a priority and being is secondary, tertiary. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an afterthought. And when being is primary, it's not that, that doing um, is, is mitigated in any way. Being empowers doing it. It gives our doing a, a foundation and a context. And I think there are, you know, when I reflect on being, I, I'm aware of, of six qualities 
that are inherent to being and so are inherent to how we live in our bodies and in the world. And, you know, being, being is spacious. You, you know, you can peer into a diamond with a physicist's eye and it's 99.9% .9 empty space. And we are primarily empty space. And we, you know, to lose that sense of our own spaciousness is to um, desensitize ourselves to our being. And being is fluid. Everything, you know, everything is in flow. Everything is a process. And we're 70% water, and yet our bodies tend to feel rigid and locked up and anything but fluid. And to unlock the body to its fluidity is, is to gain, to, to allow every part to, to come into relationship with every other part. And, and its intelligence then coalesces. At this point, you know, our, we live in this either or. Well, I can think with my head or I can feel from my heart, but, but, but it's, it's either or, or I can have a gut feeling and, or, or I can sense the world through my legs, but, 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 but that coalescence of the whole of your being into this tuning fork, as you said earlier. And, and, you know, other qualities of being are, our groundedness, our, our relationship with the earth. And we've turned our legs into these prosthetics that perambulate us around. And, and the legs teem with this attunement to the mother on which we stand. And, and you know, being has a center. I, you know, I toss my pen in the air, it'll turn around its center. Nature moves in spirals. Every spiral has a center. The The sun is the center of our system, and, and there's a black hole at the center of our galaxy, and we have a center, and we have displaced our center and moved it out of the body and into the head, and, and now, then we wonder why our lives feel off balance. And, you know, being attunes everything attunes to everything else with a sensitivity that is unimaginable and being is whole. And these qualities of being, each one of them we have sacrificed in our quest for, for more and more control over the world in which we live. You mentioned somewhere in there, which I'm just writing down right now, about the singing bowl full of sand. I thought that was great and it really hit me. Only in the last couple of years have I felt music in my body. And I was at a concert probably earlier this year and like the bass was actually doing something to my chest that was actually a very pleasant sensation. And it suddenly dawned on me like, oh, that's why people like to have bass in the music because it goes through you. And it's not like I haven't been to concerts or listened to loud music or whatever but my singing bowl's been full of sand. And so there's been no resonating of it. And it was, and I've even found it driving around in the truck or whatever, you know, like if you have the music on and like, oh, this music is hitting me in a somatic way. And it's, and it's quite, you know, when you spent 50 something years of your life not feeling that, and then you go, well, that's interesting. But, and I'd never really thought of, why it doesn't resonate. But when you said the singing bowl full of sand, it's like, yes, I'm full of sand. And I'm slowly getting that 
that that sand out of there. And that's yeah, I'll have I'll remember that one forever. The singing bowl full of sand. That's a that's a great one. I was just gonna say when you think of the Ungo Eve and Cecilalame, feel, feel it flesh inside, you know, they have a word that means listening from the ear, but but that's not real listening. Real listening is when you feel the sounds of the world through the body, which is just what was happening. Yeah, you know, and like I said before, it's this is all sort of like coming back to indigenous practices. I've read a number of books on, say, shamanism and stuff, and one of the ones I read a number of years ago was about practices you can do to help things. And one of the practices is go out in nature and sit in nature for 20 minutes a day. And initially you might sit there and just look around, you know, like use your eyes to and see what you see. But then another one of the practices is only listen and see what you can hear. But then another one of the practices is be really in your body and see what you can and, – and not see, but, but detect what you can feel about the environment in your body. And eventually the whole thing is you get to where all of those things all work at the same time. And I really think that's kind of what you're – getting to here and if you think about it it's a shamanic practice it's an indigenous practice it's it's getting us back to who we're supposed to be and how we're supposed to be yeah you're you're reminding me my favorite uh greek philosopher is heraclitus and one of his sayings is the deeper harmony is stronger than the apparent and it's that deeper harmony, you know, those those um, people who found their way back to the village by by listening to the animals, you know, it's, it's, it's that quality of learning from rather than learning about. And, and it's not learning about how to get back. It's, it's learning from the world around you. Um, it's how medicinal plants were discovered. I mean, we have this bizarre notion that Oh well, these you know indigenous cultures over hundreds of years, you know trial and error, you discover what works for what. <laughs> trial and error. How how would that play out? Well, John's got a headache. Here's a plant we haven't tried for headache yet. John, try this one. Oh no, John died. Does anyone else have a headache? Because we have another 360 plants to test for. I mean, that's the absurdity of it. And any indigenous culture will tell you the plants speak to them. Yes. Yeah, oh, certainly. Yeah. You know, I tell the story about, um, you know, in the Amazon, the ayahuascaros, you know, you ask them, you know, there's a, like a 800,000 plant species or something in the, in the Amazon and you take two of them, put them together and cook them, beat one with a stick until it turns to a pulp, cook them together and that makes ayahuasca. And they said, how did you guys figure that out? And they said, well, the plants told us. It's not like they did, let's do a double blind study and take every one of these 800,000 plants, boil two of them together, and maybe if we can get two of them together, the right ones, we can see God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's all we know. All we know is learning about. All we know is known relationship. We have sacrificed our ability to come into felt relationship largely. Yeah, and the, and the thing is, you know, when you say that we have done this, it would be very easy for some people to kind of beat themselves up, but we haven't done it. Society's done it to us. And so we need to go easy on ourselves with the 
the fact that <clears throat> if we're not embodied, it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, it's not our fault. It's, oh. you know, it's the way we've been, <clears throat> what culture's done to us. Yeah, it's, 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 not, uh, it's not that there's something wrong with you, there's something wrong with our culture. And, and just, to, just to play the other side, um, in a way, I think it, there is immense value in in that journey we've made up into the head, um, so that we live in a in a, a sort of um, almost obscenely male inflected culture at the moment, but but it's through that journey that that we were gifted with Shakespeare and Rembrandt and Bach, and uh, you know the, the, there are gifts, but but we're at a turning point where either now those those two poles of our consciousness come back into harmony or the toxicity of that male biased culture um, will undo us and and for me when I when I speak of of the natural relationship between those poles it's really typified for me by that image of the you know the man who goes down on one knee to offer the ring to his beloved and and I think the gifts of that male pole of our intelligence are gifts of perspective. And perspective, you, you only get perspective as you step back from something, as you gain distance on it. And there's value in that, but it's, it's, it's an unrealized value until those gifts are brought back into the body and integrated. And in my experience, when a perspective is integrated, it is reborn as a sensitivity. And as the man offers that ring to his beloved, those gifts, you know, if they are offered back to the the body, the body's knowing the the that deep abiding intelligence in the pelvic bowl, they will come into their true value. And I, I think again. We misunderstand, gravely misunderstand what intelligence is. We're fixated on a definition that's been fashioned by the intelligence in our head. So we think, oh, our, our intelligence is the ability to reason in an abstract fashion. And, and you, you know, you measure someone's intelligence and, and that, that's what you're measuring. And to me, that's one wavelength on this massive spectrum. And when I go to name the spectrum, the first word that comes to my mind is sensitivity. I think any sensitivity is a form of intelligence. It can be a sensitivity to a child's tears, to birdsong, to trickets, crickets, to trees, to, to Mozart. Any sensitivity is a form of intelligence, but a sensitivity is necessarily reactive. You know, if the retina didn't react, we, we wouldn't see. So that reactivity has to be grounded through the body in order to become coherent. And so I think, I think intelligence is the quality of grounded sensitivity. And we are very, very, very clever as a culture. There's never been a culture as clever as we are, and we have forgotten how to live intelligently.
Mm. Yeah, you were talking in there about, um, you know, we, we're smart and we've got to think about things and and we've got to get to where those two things come together. And I thought, well, that's what we're doing right now. We're using technology that came from our heads to talk about things not of our heads. Yeah, yeah, it's a good point. That, that you know, there are gifts on both sides. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of like when you get into the whole spiritual side of things and really understand that, you know, when you've had experiences not of this dimension sort of thing and you become aware of of our existence as a soul outside of this meat suit here, then it can be a bit hard to like, well, how do you, how do you live in this? How do you live in this reality knowing that one's there? And it's kind of the same thing, same thing here. How do you, how do you exist? Uh, you know, it's not just one or the other. It's not like we're living like hunter gatherers anymore. We're in this society and culture we're in and it's the, you know, it's the interplay of those, those two things that I think is the, or the integration of those two, which is the, can be the challenge. Yeah, and I, I mean, just from my, there's a, there's a great book, um, Body as Spirit by Charles Davis. Um, and, and I feel my body as my portal to that realm of the soul. In fact, I think, you know, for me, my, my soul, I don't, you know, it's not that my, I don't feel my soul wanting to connect with the eternal. It, it, that, that's, that, that's a given for it. What I feel is its hunger to feel this moment, to feel this world, to taste it and respond to it and be activated by it. That's what I feel as, as my soul. And that is a totally embodied experience for me. That was interesting. You got like some grit in your voice like then, and I could just see that was coming from your body. That was that was very cool to watch. You know what we might do here is we might get to some of these questions you chose. And you know, I started out this whole thing saying, "Oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna back up and figure out what the process was. How did you get to this point?" But what you're talking about is too fascinating. So I've I've let that expectation just fall by the wayside. Um, you do talk about that quite a bit in your book, Radical Wholeness, you know, talking about the the no theatre and all that sort of stuff. So people can find out about that um, in other ways. But let me ask you these questions. So the first question that you chose was, what book do you recommend the most? Not necessarily your favourite book, but the book that you recommend to other people um, more than any other book. There's a, a little book called Original Wisdom by Robert Wolff, W-O-L-F-F. And this guy was a scientist, and, and it's about his journey. And he, he gained, gained access uh, and became friends with the Sungoi culture in Malaysia. It is, it is such a heartfelt tender, um, shocking in, in its way, 
entree into another way of knowing this what we call felt relationship. And just to just to talk about one one little little um, incident in it, he found a mentor in Ahmed, um, and 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 this Sangoi culture lives in the mountains. You know um, where where uh, there is they they've heard of the sea, but they don't even have a word for it. And Robert Wolf was going to his home right by the sea. And asked if anyone from the village would like to come. He, you know, that he was going to spend the night and then come back the next day. And and Ahmed said, "I would like to come." So he took Ahmed, and and he woke up in the morning to find Ahmed standing a hundred yards from the sea, just standing, standing for a long, long time. And. When Ahmed got back to the village, he said, we, we need to have a meeting. I have something important to tell you. And he started to talk about the ocean. And he started to describe how there were animals in the ocean that, that didn't need to, to come up for air unless they were these massive, and he described whales, these massive um, creatures. And he talked about the currents and how fish ride the currents in the oceans, and and he talked about how there were mountains at the base of the ocean, larger than the mountains that they knew, and valleys. And he described the ocean that he had felt through his body, never having encountered it before. Um, there are so many eye-opening um, experiences that Robert Wolf shares with such humility and openness. It's a it's a slim little volume, and everyone should read it. While you're uh, we're talking, then I just did a little bit of research on that book. Yeah, it looks fascinating. Oh, it's gorgeous! It's gorgeous! It's heart opening. But once again, it comes back to you know an indigenous culture. You think about um, that Anglo Eve, a West African. I talked about the Bushmen in the Kalahari, so they're kind of south, you know, in Botswana, the southwest. This is in Malaysia. We've talked about uh, you know indigenous tribes in the Amazon. Yeah. And what what I really find um, fascinating about all of that is, you know, I had a um, I had a, a podcast guest named Jessica Whiteplume. So she lives on the reservation in, I think Jess is in North Dakota, but she left the reservation, went and got a, a PhD in psychology, and she now lives back on the reservation and, and helps the the people there. And I was talking about on the podcast about my interest in you know, indigenous practices. And she kind of, she kind of had mentioned, you know, cultural appropriation. And I said, well, I, you know, I, I'm not trying to zero in on one indigenous culture and say, I want their practices. I said, but I've, you know, I've noticed that you can have indigenous people from all different parts of the world and they have, practices that are millennia old so before the time when people were sailing around the world in ships so there was not artifacts or things getting taken from one place to the other and they're all so similar to each other it's got to be earth wisdom you know that's the that's the stuff that fascinates me is and i had said to her i said you know because i'm i'm a white guy so i really don't have that indigenous 
background. She goes, well, if you go far enough back, where are you from? And I said, oh, mostly England and Ireland. She goes, well, you go far enough back, you had that, you had that too. And, I, you know, that was a, a great reminder to where we're all Indigenous from somewhere at some point in time. And we all have that in our DNA. We all have that in our, in our roots. And, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to exploring a bit more of that. But anyway, your questions, the book you recommend the most, that's, yeah. So I've just written that down. Original Wisdom by Robert Wolf, and I just read a little bit about it. It's like, oh, yeah, it's fascinating. How do you say the name of that tribe? The Singoi. Singoi, yeah. I, it's, uh, it's got some apostrophes in there. It, it S-N-G apostrophe O-I, Singoi. I mean, I'm not sure that that's how it's pronounced, but that's how I pronounce it. So, Well, I'm going with how you pronounce it. All right, all you, right. You, you steered me pretty good with Sese Lalami. So. I actually, for a number of years, I pronounced that wrong. I thought there was an extra S in it. So I used to say Sese Salami. Ah. And then I realized, hang on, now that's too many S's. That's Sese Lalami. Okay, next question. What is your favorite quote? Uh, I go back to Heraclitus again. Changing, it rests. So here's Heraclitus. Heraclitus, you know, we made this decision um, there was Heraclitus, and contemporary, contemporaneous with him was Parmenides, who came a little later. But they, they, and Heraclitus speaks of the logos as as Lao Tzu speaks of the Tao, the logos, the mind that steers all things through all things. And he looks at the world, and you know, he's the one who said um, the only constant is change. But what he realized was that, that the changes he saw around him were the world's ability to remain at rest. That, 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 that the sense of rest, if you resist the change, then you're not at rest. When the, when the leaf falls from the tree, it is, it, is, it is falling because it's not holding on. It is resting. When the wave rolls in on the shore, it is at rest, it's resisting nothing. And it's such a gorgeous insight that the changes we see around us are the world's way of remaining at rest as it unfolds, unfolds, unfolds. And so it is with us, the changes that that life initiates, you, you know, even, even as, as we might feel like a, a piece of baker's dough being pummeled by it, um, to to remain at rest is to is to unfold along your path and i think we we can so easily buy into entitlements that 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 say well you know change is an imposition mm. so it's all about acceptance a lesson in acceptance and and and, and trusting that quality of being at rest in the present and the changes that initiates. Mm, good stuff. Um, so you, when did you write your first book? Um, basically from 2001 to 2011. Okay, when did Radical Wholeness come out? 2017. Okay, and the reason I'm asking that is you've written these two amazing books. I know you've written several after that. But one of the questions that you chose was what has <clears throat> changed in the past five years that helped shape you, 
who you have become. And so these are, this is post those two books, which means it tells me that you are not stuck in this is how it's supposed to be. There's a more of an evolution. So what is this evolution? What have you changed in the past five years that's helped shape who you have become? Um, I got an email from someone in my city um, saying, you know, I, uh, we have a mutual friend um, who put me in touch with you. Uh, I own a gym um, and I have a sort of special workout. Could I show it to you? You know, work, I've never been interested in gyms. I'm, I just not. I'd rather be outside running or whatever. Um, but, but I'm open. Sure, sure. So I went in and did this workout. Walk into the gym and there are no mirrors. There's no music. There are no video screens, just these machines. And he puts me through the workout and it is slow. It's like you're moving against resistance slowly and you lift it and you lower it slowly, slowly until you until you come to momentary failure, where despite your best effort, you cannot lift it, you cannot even hold it, and it is lowered. I was more alive doing that workout than I had been in months. And he said, well, come back if you'd like to. So I I went back to the gym, and uh, he trained me, and uh, I trained him in my method. And, And it's it's from that um, initiation that my third book, Deep Fitness, was born. And to say it has changed my life is an understatement. Um, I am, I mean, I'm 70 at the moment, and I'm getting, I'm still getting stronger five years later. Now, my hope you know, 30 years ago would have been, well, m- you know, maybe when I'm 70, I, I won't be getting I won't be getting weak too, you know, too quickly. Maybe I'll be able to slow down. No, I'm getting, I'm getting stronger. And there is something so um, effective in this workout. Um, you, can, you can do one workout for half an hour once a week and get stronger and stronger because of the nature of this slow movement and getting to failure. When, you're, when your body fails... It gets the message that the environment is presenting challenges that that you're not strong enough to meet, and it rallies the resources to remodel that muscle to make it stronger. The benefit, the the change in my life is not not just, oh, it's nice to be strong. What I talk about in the book is there is so much research in the last 15 years that is known by specialists primarily, um, that has overturned age-old assumptions about fitness. So in 1968, Kenneth Cooper wrote a book, Aerobics, and his book sold 30 million copies. And he said, you know, the most important function of exercise is to strengthen the heart and lungs. Um, The best exercise is cardio, because it does that. The more you do, um, the better. And you had a point system. You could add up how many points you'd earned in a week by walking or cycling or swimming or running. And, um, you know, strength training he advised against because as he understood it, um, the more muscle you have, the more load it's going to put on your heart. Every one of those assumptions has been overturned. 
our understanding of muscle has been completely renewed. So we've always understood that muscle moves us around, but it has a secondary function, primary function. Muscle is a hormone factory, in effect. It creates these messenger molecules that go through the body. There are over a thousand different kinds of myokines, they're called, that promote health in everything. Your mental acuity, your bone mineral density, your cardiovascular system and capillarization, you know, your immune system, everything is 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 rejuvenated by this flush of myokines through the body. The stronger a muscle is and the more intensely it works, the more myokines it produces. And every single chronic disease that we associate with aging is associated with a loss of muscle. Every dementia and arthritis and osteoporosis and and many forms of cancer, they are all associated with a loss of muscle mass. So it turns out that muscle is the foundation of your metabolism. And there is no need to get weaker and weaker as we age. The body will respond to the, to the appropriate stimulus. And that's what this workout has done for me. And yes, it has changed my life. The whole slow part of it makes me think of, I was watching a video recently of someone who's quite high up in the, like the fitness world or whatever, but they're talking about, let's say you were doing bicep curls, okay? And they were saying it's just as important to keep the tension going down as it is lifting the weight. And they said, actually, that's more important than the lifting of the weight is the the lowering it down. And then I saw a video of a, uh, he was a like an army drill sergeant, whatever, and he said this guy could not do um, pull-ups and uh, like just couldn't get, he couldn't even lift his own body weight. And so what he had him do was he had him get up on a step at, and start at the top and lower himself. And he said after a week or two of just slowly lowering himself, he could then start to pull himself up. Um, and it sounds like it's kind of related, very much related to what you're talking about. But there was something else talking about this embodied process here. I remember watching a video years ago of, um, it was a short clip of Arnold Schwarzenegger back when he was, you know, Mr. Universe or whatever he was. This is probably the 70s. But he was talking about <clears throat> most people do it wrong, bodybuilding, because they're not in their muscle. Yeah. Meaning your focus is not in your muscle. You're thinking about lifting the thing, but your awareness is in your head and it's not actually in that muscle. It's like, that's the stuff right there. Yeah. yeah. So we we call this method that, that the book Deep Fitness introduces mindful strength training to failure. Ah. <clears throat> and it's, <laughs> it is that, 
it's, as you say, it's the slowness of the workout that enables you to be fully, fully present to what is happening, to feel every little thing, to, to be with your muscle. And it also takes us out of that relationship we've been habituated to where we sit atop the body the way you might sit on a donkey and, mm -hmm. and beat it to go harder for its own good. This, you know, this is dropped into the body, into the pelvic bowl. We talk about this in the book. And, and that, that impulse of lifting comes from deep, deep within the body. It's, it's as though the breath in the pelvic bowl were the piston that moves the weight. And it's, it's such a different feeling. There is no, there's no willfulness to it. There's no, um, division or aggression. It is, it is the living out of pure intention. Mm. Is that one an audible as well? Yes. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. I have, these days I have more time to listen than I do have time to read. Yeah, and if you, if you get the audible, make sure you get the PDF with it because there are, there are in the book, there are practices um, that you can do with body weight at home or if you have access to a gym. So there, there are two sets that, okay. that, are, that come with it, yeah. Perfect. Yeah, I'm on a. I'm on a bit of a. A I don't know if you'd call it a fitness kick, but I've um, in February I'm doing a thing called the Gaucho Derby, which is billed as the world's toughest horse race. Wow! So it's a survival race across 500 kilometers of Patagonia on horseback, to where you, um, you know, you have your, you carry everything with you, so your tent and your sleeping bag and your food and your stove and everything you need, but you're limited to. 10 kilos, 22 pounds, which includes the weight of your pack. So, um, and yeah, it takes the winners about seven days. Uh, if you don't finish the race in 10 days, they come get you. Uh, and you ride seven different horses. So you may be oh. riding a different horse each day. Uh, but anyway, so, uh, you know, I'm not much of a, well, I was going to say I'm not much of a workout sort of a guy because, I've spent most of my life in shutdown. I've had no access to readily available energy. So, you know, the whole depression thing, it's such a, you know, catch-22 is, you know, working out is good for depression, but when you're depressed, you've got no energy. And so it's this whole, you know, circle thing. But anyway, I'm, 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 I'm in a better place now and actually getting some things done. So anyway, so, yeah, that's – I've was really interested in what you were saying there because I'm actually in, I'm in workout mode at the moment. So that's cool. Okay. Next question. Um, where do you find motivation and inspiration for what you do? When, when I come fully to rest in the present, I feel the present as a, living thou, one that knows me more intimately than I could know myself. And, you know, I think every one of us has this unique cluster of gifts that no one else in the world has been born with before. Not this cluster, not this. And I think the world is whispering to us in every moment to put those gifts into service. We are summoned and and if i if i pause and i drop into the present and feel it as that living thou 
I can whisper, what do you ask of me? And there is always a response. I am always, always motivated, the next step, the next journey, whatever it means. And I will answer that summons with the whole of my being, with everything I can offer it. I don't want to get into judgment here, but that is the best answer to that question I've ever received. I was, I was picking up what you're putting down there. That was very cool. And you guys at home listening, um, you can only hear what Philip's saying, but watching you right then, there was, it was like, like something came over you right then. You were almost, you were almost uh, channeling or downloading or uploading or attuning <clears throat> attuning yes it was definitely coming through you okay next question is what quality do you admire in people presence it's so it's so simple i think the greatest gift you can give anyone is to be fully present to them and to feel someone that um undone and released and it's it's like you know your your those qualities of being i spoke of you know your spaciousness your fluidity your your centeredness your groundedness your attunement your wholeness these these qualities of being enable you to stand in the river of the present without resisting it and open to its every little current of guidance. And I can dance with someone who is present. And it is such a joy, not knowing where the dance will lead either one of us, without any one of us leading the dance. Um, that, that quality of play is life itself for me. In your answer there you said something about someone who's i wrote it down undone and released and you know all those questions i sent you there was 20 of them i think and you get to choose a number of them one of the early podcasts i did i said you know what i give all these questions to people and they chose some i might do a podcast where i answer all 20 questions just so you get my take on it. And the, the, um, my answer to the quality I admire in, in other people has changed over the years, but the, the answer I have these days is someone who is, is open. Like you're talking to them and you can tell there's no, there's no walls up. Like they're letting all of you in and they're showing you all of them. And when you said undone and released, I'm like, yeah, that's probably another way of, of putting that same thing. When you're talking to somebody who you can tell they're, they're not holding anything back from you and they're allowing all of you in and they're showing all of them themselves. Because, you know, I think for a long time that anything like that was really hard for me. Uh, and so I, you know, it's something like something you're like, I would, I'd like to get to that. And it was interesting. I was talking to someone here 
oh, earlier this year, it was actually at a horse expo, and I was talking to this lady, she's a therapist, and I was, we were having a, we were having a quite an intense conversation, and we were just holding each other's gaze very intently. No one was blinking, it didn't feel odd, and, I, and in the middle of the conversation, I just blurted out, you know what, I didn't used to be able to do this, and she said, what? And I said, just hold someone's gaze like this and not feel weird. And I said, and I'm not unsure what's changed if I, you know, because you're letting someone see you when you are doing that. And I said, I'm not sure what's changed. I'm not sure if what they are seeing has changed. And so I'm not concerned about what they're seeing anymore because I've healed those parts of me or... I'm no longer ashamed of those parts. I haven't changed those parts of me and I'm now good with the other person seeing those. And she said, well, it could be, it could be a little bit of both. But it's, it's the, yeah, for me, the quality of my own people are kind of what you said right there, those people who let others in. But that undone and released, I had to write that down because I thought those two terms resonated with me right there. Yeah, and just to say, I, I, I think we get very confused about what it means to be present. You know, the tendency, if I, if I were to say to someone, just be present, the, the tendency in our culture is, okay, give me a moment, and we start organizing ourselves <laughs> into what we imagine presence to I be. Would. Yeah, and to me, the quality of being present is the, the experience of feeling myself being organized by the present being informed by it, being touched by it, being guided by it. And so the more I tend to organize myself, the more I thwart the immediacy of that experience. And and so so you know when I'm when I'm teaching workshops, I offer another way of understanding presence that has less baggage attached for me because I feel an equivalence between presence and receptivity. If I am fully present to you, I'm fully receptive to you. If I'm fully receptive to you, I'm fully present to you. And it's, it's so much cleaner in a way for me to just receive without agenda, without judgment, without needing to name or identify or, or conclude, to just receive. And it sounds like when you were with that, in that gaze, that you you were allowing yourself to just receive her presence without needing to do anything about it, without needing to organize any outcome. Mm. I don't know how that sits with you. No, that definitely... I've got so much to think about this this conversation with you. It's great. Uh, you just mentioned your workshops. Can you tell me a bit about those? And um, do you, I imagine you do them all around the world. Do you have other people who who are certified in what you do that do them as well? And are they one day, two day, three days? Can you just tell us a bit more about those? Yeah. Uh, so the standard workshop I share is two days. And it feels like a little like like a polished gem at the moment. Um, it moves through four themes. And the first theme is breath. And we are so trained. I mean, everything we do is top down, including the way we breathe. 
I, I would never, ever say to someone, take a deep breath. Because, you know, the intelligence of the head knows exactly what that means, knows how it's done, and and makes the body do it. And and so you're in a divided state. And and as the muscles push the breath deeper into the body, if you know, eventually they get tired and the breath goes shallow again. And 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 that's not how a baby breathes. A baby releases its body to the in-breath and releases its body to the out-breath. And so to to find that experience prepares the way for the next theme, which is rest. So I talked about our inability to truly come to rest in the body on the earth. And, you know, once you've, once you've awakened the breath in the pelvic bowl, I feel, I feel the pelvic floor as the ground of my being. When I come to rest in myself, it's there I return to. When I, when I seek my deepest attunement to the world, that's where that attunement is centered. And so to bring the, to avail, and the pelvic floor is a diaphragm in the body. It moves with the thoracic diaphragm. They move together, except that in our culture, that pelvic floor gets locked up in darkness and neglect and, and, and becomes inaccessible. So to bring life back to that opens the opportunity of coming to rest there within the body. And once you come to rest there, it prepares for the next theme, which is receptivity, the equivalent to presence. And once you're receiving into the pelvic bowl, then you can integrate. And that's the last theme. So the workshop moves through those four themes with a whole bunch of practices. I don't even know how many. Um, and there are people... What, what was the third one? So there's rest, breath. Receptivity. Receptivity, okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's such a big thing for me to recognize that receptivity and presence are in some way equivalent and to allow yourself to just receive. And then, you know, you talked about the, the difficulty of speaking. Well, we go into delivery mode when we speak, we, 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 we deliver our ideas. And I've got a, a, a little motto for myself, which, which is deliver nothing, experience everything. And, and in that, you know, in that act of speaking, we shut off our receptivity because we are delivering. And if you're not in a state of full receptivity as you're speaking, you're not fully present as you're speaking so so how to how to find that full receptivity even as you're speaking these words it's a it's a gorgeous liberating experience wow uh so i didn't quite catch do you do you are you the only one that does the um at the moment things? at the moment I'm the only one teaching the two day workshop others okay. have taught others have taught at Levco over four weekends mm. so they'll do a three day workshop for uh or a four day workshop three hours a day each day devoted to one of the themes but mm. I'm running a facilitator's training now and there are quite a few people in it who are really keen to share the weekend workshop so so they will be they will be going into the world. Awesome! And uh, when the, 
you get those facilitators organised, that'll be on your website? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so tell us how, how can uh, people find out more about you? Well, first of all, where can people get your books? Um, they're distributed by Random House. So any any bookstore should be able to order them. Um, certainly they're, if you buy your books online, um, they're readily available there. Um, I always encourage support of the local bookshop if if that's an option for you. And, okay, and so there's that. What about, do uh, you, you have a website? What's it called? Embodiedpresent.com. So not embodied presence, which I consider a tautology. Um, the, so as you mentioned earlier, you know, my work is is called the embodied present dot. Uh, the embodied present process. And what I'm trying to point to with that is that it's not that the present is out there and and I'm in here and somehow I have to build a bridge between them. No, the world is passing through you. The present is rushing through you in every moment as a river rushes through a whirlpool. To recognize that and to realize that the present is felt within you through the body. Um and so the website is embodiedpresent.com. Perfect. And social media, is it Embodied Present? Uh, yeah, on Facebook, um, Embodied Present. Uh, Instagram uh, is Philip Shepherd. Um, LinkedIn is also Philip Shepherd. I think that's it for social media. I, I haven't yet ventured into the realm of TikTok. Well... Yes, because uh, with what you're on about, that's the antithesis of being present. <laughs> Scrolling well, through yeah. TikTok. Yeah, it does seem that way to me. Yeah. Yeah, I know it's you know the social media thing is kind of hard because it's it's a very good way to engage with people, but it's also you know it's it has its goods and its bads. You know, it, it's the it's the titillation factor, the stimulus of dopamine that, that it mm -hmm. is yes. so adroit at. And to recognize what that does to the body, how it how it enhances dissociation, I think is is to gain more choice in the matter. Yeah, have you ever seen, uh, I don't know if you watch, probably don't watch much TV, but have you ever seen a, a Netflix documentary called The Social Dilemma? No. It's it's about social media and they, they so they interview <clears throat> like the guys that worked at Facebook and Google and things like that, the the guys that um set up the intelligence that recognizes what you're looking at and feeds you more of what you want and yeah, it's it's a not a not a healthy place to 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 be, but I, you know, I use it quite a bit. So it's one of those things you've kind of got to have a bit of self control. Um, Philip Shepherd, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. I just love the message you're sharing with the world, and uh, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Warwick, it's such such a pleasure. I hope uh, someday to meet you in person. We'd have so much fun. Oh, yes, I'd, def I'd definitely love to. It would have to be in the summer because you're in Toronto, Canada, and it's way too cold for me right now. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no snow at the moment, but it's on its way. It's yeah. on its way.
Well, uh, thank you so much for joining me once again. And you guys at home, thanks for joining us. And we'll catch you on the next episode of the Journey On Podcast. Thanks for being a part of the Journey On Podcast with Warwick Schiller. Warwick has over 850 full-length training videos on his online video library at videos.warwickschiller.com. Be sure to follow Warwick on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram to see his latest training advice and insights. 